I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Paulette, CMO of The Fossil Group. In 2022, Lisa oversaw a product partnership between Fossil and Staples Streetwear that incorporated an NFT drop as part of the experience. Buyers at the NFT received a physical watch that incorporated elements of both brands. The campaign got a lot of good press, but in terms of crypto years, mid-2022 was eons ago. Today, we're in a very different market. The interest in Web3 from consumers and traditional companies is in hibernation. This dynamic is exactly what makes Lisa an interesting guest for this episode. Before coming into her role as CMO of the Fossil Group, she worked with a lot of Web3 native projects, and Lisa remains bullish on the implementation of Web3 strategies for legacy brands in the long term, if those strategies are implemented for the right reasons. She walks us through how organizations like Fossil Group think about innovation broadly, the utility of NFTs beyond art, and the phenomenon of luxury brands moving into the digital space. Let's get into it. Lisa, welcome to Validated. Thank you. Thrilled to be here, Austin. So to start us off, you're the CMO at Fossil Group. What does Fossil Group encompass in terms of brands that listeners might be familiar with? So yes, I'm the CMO of the Fossil Group, which comprises the Fossil brand, but also the watch brand Michelle. There's also the watch brand Zodiac and Scoggin, which a lot of people have heard about. But then we also design, manufacture, and produce products for Michael Kors, Tory Burch, Armani, Diesel, among others. And the Fossil Group, the brand at least, is full lifestyle. So we create leather goods and watches and jewelry. Yeah, this is perfect because I've been wanting to talk to someone who is at a large brand building products for mass audience, but is also thinking about how Web3 can fit into their traditional business models. But before we get into any Web3 specifics, I want to start high level. Within something like Fossil Group, you've got a number of different brands, and they all have different personas, different ways of interacting with consumers. So when you're talking about innovation, what are the highest level objectives for Fossil Group within its house of brands? So there's going to be different elements of brand agendas or maturity, right? Sometimes the smaller brands that are off the radar are the easiest to try new things with. Sometimes the biggest brands who want to find ways to differentiate themselves will go quicker into an innovation because they want to stand, you know, they want to differentiate more quickly. And so it really depends on where the brand is to decide how innovation and how, you know, technology and all of those elements fit in. What's common across all of it is it has to come from a place of authenticity or else you're just going to be looking at everything, including what's going on in the market today as a Shangri-La or as the next best thing. When in reality, as a global marketer who's been doing this a long time, it's a tool. It's a tool to connect, um, but it's not going to replace the fundamentals of creating memorable stories and experiences that people want to participate in and talk about. It really comes down to what's authentic to the brand. Yeah. So what does this mean for business at the end of the day? Fossil Group is already a good business, an established business, and there's things you're doing that already work well. I want to understand how you think of innovation in the context of a business that's profitable. Like, why disrupt something that's doing well by making a push into Web3? Or back in 2016, experimenting with fashion-focused smartwatches before they were fully mainstream. I mean, I think that those are different, right? I mean, obviously, you want to meet your consumers where they are. And so depending on what the brand's goals are in terms of reaching different consumers 
or you've noticed an affinity for your audience that might overlap. Like you might notice that you have an affinity for gamers in your audience and gamers are in certain places. And so you'll go to those places because that's where your audience is. So sometimes your goals will be marketing goals in terms of you can have a first mover advantage and be someplace first and get a lot of earned media off that. And that allows you to, you know, start to get known for being innovative, get known for being first. And that builds credibility with certain consumers. So it could be consumers goals. Some will offer some sort of rich insight into behavior, right? So if you're actually like in a discord with a bunch of your consumers and you're hearing what they think about your products, we didn't used to be able to do that. And so it's almost like getting, you know, it's like a focus group. So it could be insight driven, could be one of your goals. And then obviously revenue, depending on what, you know, how successful, maybe if you'd asked me this a year ago, I would say revenue first, maybe a year later into a little bit of the chill Revenue is probably secondary, but it's awareness from earned media. It's being where your consumers are. It's deeper insights. It's forming community. Community is a big goal often with brands of how do you really shape the people who are participating. And I think the more forward you are, it's really that participation in your own brand. Some brands are really open to that and some, you know, are less so. So if I've got this right, before you were the global CMO at Fossil Group, you were consulting with them on Web3 strategy. How did that come about and what sort of things were you helping them think through? I left kind of the Web2 world maybe a year and a half ago, not thinking I was going to go back. And I had been introduced to a group in Web3 called the Chain Forest, which is one of the most amazing group of, of Web3 thinkers. The founder had said, why don't you just listen in in the beginning? And so I did, and I became completely, completely enthralled. And what I had noticed early on as my role as someone who is a brand strategist and a marketer was that a lot of companies were emerging trying to sell what they did and the products that they had, and they were all kind of stepping on one another and saying, like, I'm this. But I, everyone was kind of saying, you know, supercharge. I remember everyone used the word supercharge. And I was like laughing at it because all the graphics were like black and purple, everybody. And everyone looked the same and everyone sounded the same. And I just kind of was like, well, I'm not, I'm taking some time off from web two, but I can offer a point of view here of how to maybe differentiate what you're trying to do. And so I worked on the identity and the brand strategy for, for Chain Forest. And that kind of led to doing that for We3. And that led to doing other projects. And then Three months later, I became the chief marketing officer of a NFT project. And one thing had just led to the other. And all of a sudden, I was in a world that, that people were basically building brands all over again from the start. And so then when I was, what I was able to kind of start to see is how my old world, the Web2 world, was looking for different ways to connect and use their IP in a new way. Like if you think about what, you know, Starbucks is doing with their loyalty program, they're basically taking their IP and they're creating all these different ways to engage with it. And so companies that had rich IP that I'd been a part of, it was like, wow, if you want to, you know, you can take your sketchbook and make it into an NFT. You can create a loyalty platform where this doesn't have to just be a, a traditional loyalty play. It could be a founder token. So when I had originally looked at the fossil group for a permanent position in a different area, and I wasn't the right person for it, and as I saw the work that they were doing, they were, they were building a marketplace that launched in Europe actually not that long ago, I was saying, you know what, if you're going to build the community, why don't you think about this? 
Why don't you think about a founder token? And so I started to then bring them up to speed. Well, here's what Gucci's doing. Here's the amazing stuff that they're doing with the vault. They've created this business unit. They have certain products that are unique to this community. They're designing for this community. They're bringing them in. Why don't you look at it like this? And so that became the beginning of the relationship, which was more of like an education of what's going on in the market. And then, you know, at the end, of, I would have to every week kind of come with a report and be like, what does this mean for you? And so it started to just fill in the blanks there. So this brings us to the summer of 2022, when Fossil released its first NFT collection with Staple, which, for folks who don't know, is a streetwear brand founded by designer Jeff Staple, who runs an NFT community called Stapleverse. Walk us through how this came about. You know, the full Jeff Staple partnership, not just the NFT, it was an artist partnership, and it actually came to Fossil through our PR agency as like a collab. The NFT component of it came together through Bitsky. So basically, it was a product collaboration with an artist. And if I don't know how much you know about Fossil's kind of creative roots, but they had this other smaller brand called Misfit. And that Misfit positioning was really about kind of speaking to the Misfits. So going back to authenticity, its positioning was really aligned with that initial ethos of Web3. And then when you thought of the collab with Jeff Staple, it became kind of like a way to combine all of those things. So it was a real, it was a partnership on a watch and a really kind of, you know, unique looking watch that had an NFT component. Internally at Fossil Group, how did the company decide this was both the right product and the right time to be experimenting with Web3? You know, we do collaborations all the time. So it's again, it was more about Staple's a brand. And so it was a brand collaboration that happened to have an NFT and happened to have this component of it, which is a little bit different. So as I said, it kind of started much more, you know, organically as the brand collaboration, which then led into this. It was like, well, what if we tried this? And at the time when this launched, it, even now it seems eons ago, the, the Web3 space was in a different place. And as, at least for brand partnerships, there was a lot of brands that were starting to participate. And so I think also being able to say, this is a safe, easy way. The Bitsky platform made it very easy, right? It's very democratic. There are a lot of things that just fit in easily. And because it was kind of that first mover, going back to some of the goals, it gave a profile to the brand that it probably didn't have before. But it started out, you know, as most things do, much more organically as a brand collab. So how did the consumer experience both the physical and the NFT side of the product? Well, you were able to mint through the other partner, Bitsky, who acted as a connector, and we used their platform to buy and mint the NFT. So Misfit had its own Discord, but we kind of triangulated, I would say, between creating the actual product and then being able to issue the NFT to those people who became part of the collaboration. How did it all go? To be very honest, the goals were really pressed. Yeah. I mean, the earned media value far outweighed the revenue gains. The brand got a lot of credit for doing something early. And, you know, now that when we're talking about more Web3 opportunities like, you know, Metaverse Fashion Week and all of these other things that you see a lot of brands participating in, Roblox, we're now weighing that first mover advantage with, okay, we really have to find something besides PR and earned media value in order to drive the decision because it is a, there's still a lot of work involved. It was more newsworthy then. And I think because Bitsky was such a, 
I mean, they're 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 just a very easy they're just a very easy partner. They did a lot of the heavy lifting. I mean, to be honest, and so they really facilitated that for us in order to to kind of create a seamless NFT minting process for the customer. So we fast forward a bit. Yeah. You're now in house. You're now officially now in, in charge. So now this team is my team. Yeah, which is so ironic. So now the successes and the failures are on you. Are um, <laughs> so we're obviously in a very different market than we were in yeah. September. I think there were there were sort of you know I'm sure when you maybe when you decided to accept this job and you know thinking about how Web three could be a part of it, you know things have changed a lot in the last six to nine months. How is your thinking? as an organization about Web3 change? Are there things that you have, you know, decided that maybe you're going to pull back from or things that you've decided that actually, you know, this this is actually a time to build something internally and workshop it in an R&D lab and, and keep it ready for maybe sometime in the future? I think it's both those things. I think there are certain things that we were full speed ahead on that we've stopped. And then there are areas that were less of a prioritization that we're probably rethinking. So, you know, I think when this was all starting, everybody was, as you said, kind of all in on having to build every element of capability that you could think. How do we store ETH? How do we convert that into dollars? How do we transact? Would you put it on Shopify and then we have their, you know, like we were trying to figure out the entire consumer journey. Like, oh my God, we have to reinvent the wheel because this is the future. And when I say that, I don't say that in like a, a judgmental way. I mean, it really felt imminent in a very exciting and positive way. Now, I would say there's a couple of phases of like almost reality thinking. And one of those was art wasn't enough, right? And you heard this kind of argument in the NFT space. So in the beginning, it was like, I just want access to great things. Then those things needed to do more things. And then those things needed to be managed by, those more things needed to be managed by more people. And so when you started to actually create the ecosystem and look at the ecosystem around to build multiple NFT projects, make sure that those projects had utility, reinforce that utility, build upon that utility, you were basically building an entire division that was basically like a loyalty division. Yeah. Right. If you think about this, if for folks in the world who have built loyalty programs, it's about a, you know, I don't know, 15 month to 17 month build. And you have to archive every single asset. It's very methodical in how you have to kind of release, quote unquote, utility or benefits. It's not that different. And so if you really I mean, that's what I'm saying. When you really look at the similarities, it's building that type of platform. It didn't seem at the time then the right way to invest time resources or dollars as the market was chilling. From a belief or I'd say philosophical standpoint, as we were building new projects and launching, there still seemed like, wow, if we're going to start from scratch, we don't have to migrate. Why wouldn't we start with something that's based on blockchain? And so where things weren't priorities because we just wanted to launch and get them out the door, now they're becoming more opportunities because you are starting from a baseline that maybe you can just start small and build it incrementally. When you have existing brands, your consumer already expects something from you. And so just because you go into Web3, that doesn't mean that you're allowed to because it's an emerging technology, you know, not deliver on that promise. So if we're a fossil, they expect something from us. So if we're in Web3, we have to deliver at the standard of that brand, no matter what the territory is. And so 
I think when it became less and less turnkey, it became harder to justify. Yeah. You know, you were talking there about this process of, oh, we're just starting with art and then we have to get utility and then we have to get. And so I want to go into a little bit of like what some of that utility looks like for a fashion brand. But I guess, do you think that's an honest assessment of what happened or we just never found product market fit during the bull and people kept trying to add new things onto it? Yeah. I mean, you know, BFF, all of these kind of communities, Capsule House, they're I think they're still figuring it out. I mean, it's, I, I feel like when I go back in, to me, and I could be wrong, it's still the same names. I still see Randy Zuckerberg just about everywhere, right? Like, I still see some of the same, Chris Cantina, I still see these same people talking about how it's going to revolutionize the business world. And so I don't think, and I was, you know, part of the teams that were pitching fashion businesses. And I don't think, to your point, I don't think there is a very clear product market fit yet outside of maybe luxury where I think it's a much easier, you know, opportunity when you think of authentication and counterfeiting. And so I think it depends where you are in fashion. You know, if you have a really strong brand and you're creating products that people want to own and there's scarcity, like you would do any collab, there's probably a room to start to create some very powerful Web3 community tools which could, you know, translate into loyalty. Or if you're buying something that's, you know, $10,000 and you want to have proof that it's actually original and that's important to you or part of that type of club, then I think it's very applicable. I think for the mass brands, it's a little bit harder unless you're creating other scarcity opportunities like brand collaborations where it's really important to have that. But that has to be part of your business model. It's not that Web3 has to be part of your business model. Right. Yeah. And so I see what you're saying about sort of the authenticity component for luxury goods. But in some ways, that's like a that's a proposition for the luxury retailer. It's not necessarily a proposition for for the consumer. How are they sort of thinking about more like things that drive value on the consumer side? Well, I mean, I do believe a brand, that's what I'm saying, I do believe a brand like Gucci is driving value for the consumers because people want to be a part of that community. Yeah. And I do think like when it was Alessandra Michelle, anything to get close to that person and that design ethos was inspiring to people. And they were creating experiences that was basically like a club. So I think that's more relevant to luxury from a consumer standpoint because it's a different way to have access to a brand. You know, before the only way you could have access to a brand is buying a low price item, right? You could buy perfume or a bag, right? You'd have to get in the brand by, by looking at their tier of entry. But to get to the core where you're having something unique and special designed for you and you're, you're able to buy into that and have access, I mean, access and luxury is huge. Yeah. Where do you think that that value chain goes over the long term? I mean, there's this famous moment where the Gucci products in Roblox were actually more expensive than the Gucci products in real life. Do you think that same was a fluke? Same for the Rolex, oh, right? Really? Same, I, I, I think, I can't remember the artist's name, Jesus. I can't, it was Jesus something. And he did um, NFTs of the Rolex that were more expensive than the products themselves. Yeah, walk me through like why that might've been the case. If you think this was sort of just an early fluke or we actually might see the value start to transfer where digital products become more desirable than physical products in some ways the the avenues that I would expect them to have the least fit in, which are luxury physical goods. Why? Why? Just curious why you think it have the least because you think just the physical has more inherent value than the digital? 
I think that's the bias I'm coming with because, you know, for me, as someone who's not a ready consumer of a lot of these luxury brands and <laughs> products, I mean, like, I, I enjoy You're watching- not buying a $25,000 Birkin bag? No way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know me, right? Um, yeah, I do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as someone who, like, my relationship to high-priced items has usually been for the fact that higher price items tend to be better made and have some form of like physical utility to them more than the community or the sort of emotional utility that might come with something. And maybe that's the wrong way to look at this whole space. Uh, listen, there's no doubt more, a lot of luxury is based on quality and craftsmanship. That's a core component of a luxury item. But, but status is all emotional. And emotional is about being a part of something that someone else doesn't get to be a part of. I mean, that's, in my opinion, what status is, is that I have reached something that others have not. And I want to show that. And I show that through my the way that I look and dress. So how do you think a luxury brand represents its value in the digital realm? Because... Birkin bags are a great example of this. They're hard to get, right? Even if you're ready to go spend 25 grand on one, you can't just walk into a store and say, hi, I would like to buy one. There's an element of friction in buying a Birkin bag that's presumably part of the status of a Birkin bag. And it's not clear to me how we digitize that part of the experience. I mean, to your point, I don't think it'll ever be fully digital. I think the Birkin is a really interesting example. I don't know if a if Birkin itself and, and Hermes will ever create a, a full-on digital experience, you know, I think it just sued the the Meta Birkin, right? Yeah, one. I think so. Um, you know, so I do think, again, and I know I, I sound probably very repetitive of saying it's really based on the brand and what their goals are. A brand like Hermes doesn't need to necessarily shift any of their strategies to reach a different consumer, whereas other brands are trying very hard to create a more younger experience, reach new audiences to keep, you know, volume. And I think it's a lot of those brands that I think are probably first on the list who are saying, no, we're looking to, you know, modernize our database. We're looking to create more flow into the brand. We're an aging brand. And so I think that you can have an aging brand that's mass, but you can also have an aging brand that's luxury. And I think Gucci, which was once considered, I mean, there is a time, people don't realize this, where Gucci was like not wanted in stores. It was considered dusty. And in a matter of very short period of time, they really shifted that and became a brand for millennials and Gen Zs. So I think it's still really relevant if that's what the brand wants to do. But I don't think it's all luxury. I do really think that authentication, though, will be critical for brands that are suffering from such a high level of, of counterfeiting. So sitting at Fossil Group, I'm sure you probably can't go into specifics on, on all these, but what are the kinds of work you have kept doing in Web3, the kinds of stuff you guys have decided to pull back from, and the sort of stuff that maybe you've placed on a shelf and someday later you'll pick it up and dust it off and say, we have this playbook ready to go? Yeah. I mean, I think I'm still very interested in the idea of building community around founders tokens and creating experiences that are unique to that community. And I'm very interested in that for more emerging brands and emerging experiences. Finding that right loyalty platform, for lack of a better word, I think is still something 
that is really, really interesting. And I'd put that green. I think the yellow is really kind of the experience that, that exists. Because then I'm like, well, what does it cost to be there? <laughs> and if we're there, what are we doing? And then how do we follow up? And then how do we make sure that we're delivering on that experience? And so it used to, again, be a little bit easier of a proposition, but I think I'm a lot more yellow on the Web3 experiences until I kind of understand more of how we can be there for a long time. We have a type of business and brand that would play very well in terms of digital twins and digital accessories. And so personally, I would love to be in games and I would love to be in these platforms and I'd love to have basically a twin ecosystem of everything that we do for the brand in, in physical locations with everything we do with the brand in digital locations and have that be interoperable where you could put on your bag and you can put on your watch and use that in, in a lot of ecosystems. I just think, you know, self-expression is very, is no different in Web 2 to me than it is in Web 3. And so if we can be a part of people's ability to express themselves and to differentiate who they are, I think that's amazing. And so for me, again, that just, that just speaks to the value of the brand. And if we can do that in Web 3, I'm all in. Yeah. What would you be looking for as signs that it's time to re-engage or up your engagement in Web3? Um, I think that's really, you know, that's what I'm saying. I think that's a that's a brand question in the sense that it's not just about what's going on in the market. I mean, is there an appetite for it? Obviously. I mean, I think there's a there, there's a cooling, right? Like I was surprised, to be honest, by the Porsche outcome. I really was. Intellectually, it had all the ingredients, right? It had an incredibly loyal base, it had a luxury product, but again, not really understanding what it was supposed to do. People didn't really know what to do with it. Yeah, and just to give some context to that, a couple of months ago, Porsche launched an NFT collection celebrating the Porsche 911, and the project basically crashed and burned within 24 hours. The NFTs are overpriced. I think less than a quarter of the NFTs were actually minted, and the whole thing was largely critiqued as a tone-deaf money grab in the midst of a bear market. So as someone in your position, how do you avoid replicating what happened over at Porsche when it comes to the future of Web3 projects at Fossil? I would listen to our consumers, you know, and see, you know, what's important to them. And if it, if it fits to deliver through Web3, then, then we should. I think I'd want to see more just adoption. And, you know, there's still so much negative press. I think there's still a lot of consumer doubt. I think I would need to see that there's a lot more trust and that there's a lot more belief that the, the values that I saw for why I joined the Web3 space are persistent and enduring and reinforced. I think that belief system and that trust was eroded. So when you're talking to, to stakeholders internally at Fossil Group about this, how do you go about explaining to them why they should do something weird and new and potentially scary? I would never advocate for something that didn't make sense for what our consumers were we're believing in and doing, right? The dialogue is what is the risk tolerance and the time frame to have the kinks work out. This isn't something that I, me or anybody else can walk in and say, this is going to work great and it's perfect. You have to have a test and learn agenda and ethos as part of your organization. You know, I certainly didn't go in and convince Fossil to do anything. Fossil has an innovative core they are developers, they are creators, they are builders. And so it's in their DNA to look at something through that lens. Now, they're also business people. 
<laughs> but listen, you know, on the flip side, you know, one of our brands has an incredibly passionate consumer following. One of their creative directors is on fire. He's amazing. And they have a lot of belief because their community is really rooted in, in forward-thinking technology and innovation. One of our products was actually completely designed in the metaverse. And so there's technology that comes through in different ways. You know, it's not always, you know, we designed a watch. Our designer designed it purely. He did it in the metaverse. That's how he designed the watch. And so there's plenty of ways to engage in this technology, sometimes that's not always even consumer facing, where it's how you just want to develop technology and tools to be just become more advanced and more competitive. So I think it's it's part of it is, you know, the consumer side is one thing, but there's also the development side, you know, on the other. And innovation isn't just Web3, right? It's Chad, it's all these other AI things. And so it's a suite of products and technologies and opportunities that we look at to enable either quicker optimization of, of elements or just kind of furthering our own creative acumen. We've talked a bunch about Web2 brands entering Web3, but we've gotten to a place now where we have actually a lot of Web3 brands, whether it's an NFT project or, you know, something else built in the space that are trying to sort of make a, a pitch back to mainstream and, and sort of have something that feels a little bit more collaborative. How do you think they should be thinking about whether it's approaching a brand partnership with a Web2 company, where the opportunities exist for Web3 companies to maybe even go back to Web2 a little bit? Yeah, you know, there's a few of these brands in Web3 that took off and have a level of, right, really powerful communities. Board Ape, obviously, would be the one. Um, but I think if you look at brand strategy, they've done a really poor job of partnerships because they're all over the place. And it's a money grab as opposed to this is our authentic strategy. So I think, you know, I, I'd actually written something on this that brand strategy in Web3 is a little bit different than brand strategy in Web2 because you have so many other people participating in the formation of that strategy if there's a DAO, right? That's not just a one fixed thing that you revisit every two years. Like everyone's kind of participating in the brand in a way that you have to find a more manageable way to keep that, you know, keep its core. So I think managing a Web3 project like a brand takes a level of discipline that's not always inherent to Web3 managers and leaders because they just think if you can do it, just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. And brand development is a discipline, right? It's a repeatable process of consistency. And so you have to marry those two things between a Web3 project and a, and what, you know, how they want to grow and develop with, with kind of some Web2 principles. That said, when those communities are so powerful, like I was at MoMA this weekend and it was crazy to still see a board ape sweatshirt on someone because the the entrance right now is is um the digital artist who's in the the lobby of of MoMA. And so you see a lot of digital artists and a lot of people in the web three space visiting um, and wearing kind of paraphernalia. So, you know, when I was doing this work on on the Web3 side, you had to find very strategic adjacencies like, you know, were you partnering with games? Was your point of view unique? You had to start to really like look at your Web3 project and say, do we have the right community? Does that community, you know, translate to Web2? Like just because you have an incredible, like Azuki, amazing community. They sold out of their, their jackets. Does that mean the 
that the public wants an Azuki apparel line? No, I, I don't think so. I'm not sure. Maybe they do. But if you look at that compared to everything else that's in that space, your competitive set just tripled, right? Your competitive set in the Web3 space, you might be one of three anime type of projects. But when you go out into the world, all of a sudden your competitive set is the entire anime industry. That's a fascinating way to think about it. Yeah. Right. Well, that's how I thought about it when I was looking at it for Capsule House. No longer were we just talking about Azuki or another anime-inspired brand. We were talking about every single brand in the world. And then all of a sudden, the pressure for those brands to be truly unique and differentiated goes back to, you know, authentically, what does it stand for? And does it have a reason for being? And that's the work of really good brand strategy. That's where I think, you know, I think there is application and I think there is extension, but I do think Web3 projects truly underestimate how hard it is to build a brand in general, starting from all the right tools in Web2, let alone a translation of that into Web3. I consider myself a normal consumer who's pretty engaged. I have not seen a Web3 product breakthrough. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right on that. I can't think of one. Well... Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today on Validated. No, thank you for having me. Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.